Welcome to Into Theology. I'm joined with Ian Clary and Caleb Coho. We're having a bit of a special episode where we are going to do a big picture overview of Augustine, some of the stuff in Confessions, his interaction with classical philosophy. So Ian and I called in an expert to equip us to understand what we don't fully understand. And hopefully you'll listen alongside and feel a little bit more illumined uh, on these issues because often I feel pretty dark when I talk about who the academics are in the fourth and fifth century and so on. Ian, you wanted to introduce uh, Prof. Coho, so go ahead. Yeah, I'm super excited. This is something that we've I've sort of been alluding to or sometimes even explicitly referencing for like the last, I don't know how many episodes. My friend Caleb's going to come on and he's going to answer all the questions. It's was he like, even August, real? It's like Augustine and Faustus, right? Whenever he's all the manic, he's like, Faustus will come and answer all your questions. I, so I, I'm, put, I'm hoping Caleb will do it for us. Um, but no, than it's, uh, it's awesome. I'm, I'm super happy to have my, my good friend, uh, Caleb Coho here. Caleb, I don't know how to describe my friendship with Caleb. He's like, he's my hiking buddy. Uh, we take our kids out and hike a lot. He, he lives here in Denver. Uh, he's a drinking buddy. Um, we just, uh, when the queen passed, he and I went to the pub and raised a glass, uh, in her honor. Cause of course, Caleb is a, a good monarchist, uh, because he's, he's like us, he's Canadian, uh, from Burgessville, Ontario. Um, and then, and he and our, uh, his, his wife, Samantha and their kids have just, their, their family, his family and our family are really tight since basically we moved here over five years ago. So remarkably thankful for my friendship with Caleb and the best part is just like, you know, hanging out, talking about life. And then we'll be on a hike up the side of a mountain and we're like going deep into like Plotinus and the soul or something like that. Uh, mm. which is great. Um, so more formally, Caleb, um, teaches philosophy, ancient philosophy at uh, Metropolitan State University, uh, which is here in Denver. It's the, one of the big state schools in the, in the, in the state. Uh, and uh, his training is in ancient philosophy. So you went to uh, St. Augustine's in Ottawa, I think, right? Mm -hmm. For your uh, um, kind of undergrad, then transferred over into California to Thomas Aquinas College. Um, so you did your under, finished your undergrad out there. And then uh, you went off to Princeton, where you studied Aristotle on the soul under the great John Cooper. And uh, you've just edited, you just had an edited volume on, uh, on Aristotle on the soul come out with Cambridge University Press. Um, he drives me nuts because he's actually got tenure. And so uh, his, part of his project for tenure was like uh, do, doing kind of work on Augustine and Stoicism. And so uh, Caleb's areas of expertise are things like, you know, we're having all these classical theism discussions lately. And, and Caleb is really quite literally one of the leading experts in classical theism. So uh, issues of the soul, divine simplicity, metaphysics. And he's looking at like everything from Augustine, Plato, Aristotle, Plotinus, uh, Aquinas, and, and the whole thing. So I, I don't think you're going to be a mere Faustus, the Manichae for us here. So, um, well, so I'm super well, well, excited. Well, let's not anything before it's over. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. I hope I, as long as I'm not Faustus, we're good. <laughs> I'll probably, I'll be Faustus. Let's, let's just be honest here. Uh, okay. So I, I have some interesting questions we talked about. Here, here's one thing that might be a good way to start. Sure. Can you give like a taxonomy of the philosophical schools in and around the time of Augustine, like their names and what they, like Stoicism, like they can't, mm -hmm. the, the really basic level for someone who, maybe reads Augustine and has heard about Plotinus from Augustine, but isn't really savvy in the fourth and fifth century philosophical schools. Like what's the taxonomy at the basic level? Yeah. So let's start with the school. Everyone hates the Epicureans. Oh, the worst. So, so they're um, committed materialists. Uh, everything is atoms in the void. Um, and 
the goal for, for them is the pursuit of pleasure, which is the absence of pain. And because of that, the other schools attack them for not really valuing virtue. Um, but then you've got the Stoics, uh, the Platonists, and the Aristotelians or, or Peripatetics um, as far as major schools. Um, and the distinctive claim of the Stoics is that virtue is the only true good. Uh, health, wealth, reputation, all these other things, um, we can prefer them and in a limited way pursue them. Um, but your, your happiness and whether you're living a good life is entirely dependent on whether you're virtuous, um, which makes it entirely up to us because they think uh, virtue is in our power. Um, but it means you can be happy when you're being tortured as long as you're virtuous. But also, even if you're the em emperor and seem like you have command over everything, you're, you're miserable if you're not wise and virtuous. Um, and that's a really strong influence, um, especially ethically, on on early Augustine. This uh, thinking that wisdom and virtue have to go together and that you you need them both um, to live the happy life. And he sticks with that, but he comes to reject the Stoics' um, idea that that the body um, and externals aren't aren't really good. Um, and then uh, the Stoics are also materialists. So they believe in, in uh, they have a view of the divine logos and uh, as ruling all things, but they think of it as, uh, it's a little like the force in, in Star Wars. Mm -hmm. It like pervades all things and oh, it's the active the principle acting on uh, on matter. Yeah, and if it goes you let in the me right way, you can finally. do you put it at great my things. Level, so Star Wars is good. Okay, yeah. so you have, you have the Stoics, the logos doctrine, virtue itself is good the peripatetics which are people who follow aristotle mm -hmm. um you have the epicureans who find pleasure to be uh, something that's important to pursue and then uh you never mentioned the neoplat yeah neoplatonist yeah so well that, i left that to oh. the end because it's a little more complicated okay uh I was just literally just trying to teach on them in relation to augustine augustine in class like literally like an hour ago and i am so I'm, I'm horrified about what you're going to say and you're going to correct everything that i said wrong oh i'm i'm really excited for this i want to look at ian's face the entire time to see the cringe yeah <laughs> yes so we've got obviously plato himself um following socrates and and the stoics too claim to be you know picking up on socrates elements yeah. Yeah. uh emphasis I, I on cicero it's like he really thinks he's following aristotle and plato and he, mm -hmm. he views them as one school actually yeah and especially at this time the late platonists like plotinus that um augustine is is drawing on they're taking a lot from aristotle but they're also responding to some stoic debates on on providence the big difference is um, earlier on at the time Cicero was writing, Cicero and Vero are two of um, Augustine's main Latin sources for philosophy. At, at that time, the academy, which Plato had started, sort of the first institution of higher education, um, had over the centuries um, gone in a more skeptical direction, um, partly out of some things in Plato, the emphasis on how changeable this world is. So can we have any knowledge about it? Um, and then partly uh, the Stoic and Epicureans, um, they both come uh, after Aristotle and, and Plato in, in that, um, that next generation at the end of the fourth century. And they, they are responding to and also raising a lot of skeptical worries about whether we really can have knowledge. And they, they each have their own materialist answer for that. Um, but, but that debate um, and whether 
we can know reality um, gets tricky and at least some of the heads of the academy seem to have moved in a more skeptical direction, sometimes holding on to this idea of platonic forms that we can know, sometimes even questioning that. Um, and then Cicero, uh, as uh, this Roman who's going to bring Greek philosophy to the, the empire and the Roman elite, well, to the Republic first, but it becomes an empire pretty soon. Uh, he, he adopts a sort of semi-skeptical posture um, influenced by the academy at his time, where he does want to say that some views are more, more probable. So he rejects the Epicureans. He thinks maybe there's something um, to the Stoics, but he doesn't want to uh, become a card-carrying Stoic. Um, and so um, Cicero says, we should really be seeking the truth. And that's what Augustine finds so inspiring in this, this dialogue, which is an exhortation to philosophy, the Hortensius that Augustine read when he was 17, um, that Cicero wrote inspired actually by one of the lost dialogues of Aristotle, um, which, is all, which was an exhortation to philosophy. So there's this idea of always seeking the truth and Augustine be comes a Manichae for a little bit, um, finds out that, that their answers aren't ultimately satisfactory. And that kind of pushes him in this more skeptical direction um, in the sense of, can we know um, with certainty um, or do we just kind of have to go with what's probable, but we don't have any, any, any true knowledge. Um, and then he comes to think there are certain things about uh, the self and about there being an eternal truth that, that we can know. Um, but I think, uh, Augustine is more skeptical um, about whether we can have systematic knowledge of reality than Plato or Aristotle, or some of these later Platonists like Plotinus, who they go in a more systematic direction, This the later version of, of Platonism. So it's not so skeptical. Instead, um, it's building up um, these sort of systems where you start with the, the ultimate being, the one or, or, or God, sometimes referred to in different ways. And then usually after that, you have noose or intellect and then the soul and then the material world and each level uh, emanates from the preceding one. Um, mm. And it emanates in a causal sort of way too, does it? Or Yeah, it, it's, it is dependent on the famous image Plotinus gives is, is a fountain. The one is like a fountain and then these, these waters and uh, spring forth from it and then, and then become what they are in relation to turning back towards um, the one and the source of goodness. Um, this is all inspired by um, Plato's statement in the Republic that the form of the good is is beyond being, but is the cause of being and goodness in in everything else. Um, I want to follow up with that, but just quickly to just to kind of step back. So someone's listening. We have Augustine who finds Manichaeism unsatisfactory, so he becomes a bit of a skeptic. And before his baptism, he goes to uh, was it Cassio Corum? I can't, I can't remember Cassiacum. that. Cassiacum. Cassiacum. Um, and mm -hmm. there he writes or speaks a number of dialogues, mm -hmm. one of which is against sort of skepticism and sort of affirms that you can find truth. Mm -hmm. And this probably is characteristic of his post-baptismal you know, pursuit of knowing God who is truth. And so uh, then Hortensius is, is connected to that. So that's kind of the Augustinian connection. The thing I wanted to follow, follow up with you on was you mentioned Plotinus who would be someone, I think, about like 150 years before Augustine or so. Um, and But it was hugely influential. He would be like just a famous, a relatively famous, like Azizic or uh, in, in Canada, everyone knows someone like a Jordan Peterson, even though he's not necessarily a 
huge thinker. Anyways, uh, <laughs> like that kind of name. So uh, you mentioned the things about him, like the one, the emanations. Can you just um, talk about the hierarchy of being, even if it's slightly inaccurate, just to make sense for people? Like, what is the one? How does it emanate down to, to us? Like, what's, what is that hierarchy of being that Plotinus proposes? Yeah, like, what is noose? Or what there you is go. What, how, like, how does world so got and noose and all yeah. that kind of stuff, right? And, and is it the question I have is, is it is like the one or the, whatever, is it the highest on a chain of being um, or or is there a distinction? Because it looks like there's a it's like monism in a sense. But anyway, you, you go ahead. Um, yes. So. Please make sense. I think the best way, you have yeah. three minutes. L let me contemplate <laughs> with the one for, for a sec. I want to watch yeah. the Matrix after this and I want to know what the one is. Let me know now. I think I think maybe the best place to start is noose and then we'll work up and down right. from there. Yeah. Okay. So if you think of Plato's forms, there's the idea that the good itself, the just itself, um, the true itself, the, these forms... Um, explain and cause the particular things that imperfectly participate in them that we see in the world around us. Um, but uh, as Plato explores in his later dialogues, it can't be the case that each of them is sort of off on its own. Um, this, this gets into the idea of the transcendental. So, so goodness is connected to beauty and it's connected to justice. Um, so how do you spell out that connection? Um, the idea is that these intelligible forms, all the forms of the things that really are and really are good, um, each of them is connected to all the others. And they're all um, sort of sharing in a kind of divine life by being what they are. And then noose, um, this word for reason or understanding, which is often a candidate for one of the fundamental cosmic principles from, from like the pre-Socratic philosophers on, um, it is the ultimate principle for Aristotle. Um, noose uh, is sort of the perfect understanding of all the forms in their interrelationships. And, and the forms themselves are, are living and understanding um, in that sense. And that's all in the intelligible world. And then the soul sort of descends or turns away from them. And that's, that's when it becomes embodied. And that's where you get the material world that the the soul is kind of an image of of noose and at, at its best it it is noose and connects back to it um and then at its uh not not so great part it turns turns down um and that's where you get the material world both um there's a world soul um that that is sort of doing the best job possible of ordering the material world and it's it's not so fallen um the platonists are a little different than the gnostics so so they have a somewhat negative view of matter but but the idea is the the world soul the soul of the cosmos can still order it and make it good um to whatever extent it's it's capable of to the extent that it's still matter and and not form and resistant to form there's there's something bad about it um but it can do a lot but at the individual level our souls when they turn to matter and the physical they go away from that intelligible reality and then and then you're thinking about how how, how to please the body and not how to nourish the mind uh, and that's when we get into trouble okay interesting so when augustine is wrestling through this stuff so he you know, he's in the he's he, before his kind of garden conversion experience. He's reading the Platonists. Who do you know? Do we know specifically who it would be that he was reading at exactly that time? Or 
is it just kind of like a general it's the platonists and and, and whatever he, he does specifically refer to plotinus a, a couple times in some of his yeah. early works and then he engages a lot with porphyry um plotinus is not really excited about pagan pra religious practices as, as far as we can tell he doesn't ref he has some sort of uh allegorical interpretations of some myths but then porphyry his student really right pushes theurgy and um, sacrifices to to um, pagan gods as sort of an alternative way of ascending. So on this pagan platonic view, you kind of ascend and get back to higher levels of reality by 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 meditating and developing your your contemplation. Um, but then interestingly, uh, for Plotinus, the ultimate goal isn't just to understand things and get to the level of noose. He thinks even that intelligible level comes from, yeah, this one who is be beyond being and goodness and understanding, but everything else comes from the one. And so for him, and Porphyry says he achieved this three times, right. you, you, the, the ultimate goal is a kind of direct union that isn't mediated um, even, even by simple acts of understanding. It's just this, this, communion like mystical, with a yeah kind of mystical experience mm -hmm. um, that that he, yeah he's, hostile, he's hostile to christian faith too right like is, is august augustine's a, a kind of critiquing him at certain points like i i'm remembering is it in the city of god that he's doing that or well he, yeah so he generally thinks the platonists are the best of the philosophers um because they defend the immateriality and immortality of of the soul and um of divine reality um, but he thinks they're prideful, both in thinking that we could make that ascent on our own and and achieve that kind of understanding, um, and that we uh, they're they're sort of overconfident in in what we're capable of, both morally and intellectually. Okay. Um, I think we could pivot now to a little bit of confessions because we talked about this idea of book nine ending the almost narrative portion of confessions where books 10 11 12 uh, 13 the last one yep um mm -hmm. feel or could feel a little bit different in tone because they dive deep into things like memory the place where god is which is nowhere and everywhere <laughs> time and yet for example god's outside of time and these these connections are like interesting. They make sense if you're a human trying to pursue God. And yet for maybe a casual reader, they probably feel a bit jarring. So Caleb, you had you've done some work uh, uh, as I understand in the is book eleven something you studied or something like that for, in some depth. So mm -hmm. I was hoping you could give Ian and I insight into how books one through nine connect to books uh, ten. Can I share 13. my theory? I think I've said it in the in this already. Uh, in an earlier podcast so let, here let, let me say my theory and then when caleb if he says the same thing as me i'll feel like a genius if not then i'm gonna look like a moron <laughs> okay uh, so you can correct me here so it the, is it the case that so he does up through the end of book nine he narrates you know this prayerful story of his conversion and now he's like kind of wrestling through these kind of there's sort of like epistemological questions of like what is the reliability of my memory such that i can really recall these things or recollect them but also be able to speak truthfully about who god is so book 10 mm -hmm. he's dealing with memory in this way and he's just trying to really explore like and you use that language of contemplation which again is so philosophic the contemplative life which can help you understand and come into contact union with god and then 
And then it's like time, the question of time is, is intimately related to this, right? Because it's in time where I'm doing these things. I'm remembering these events happen in time. I'm remembering mm -hmm. them in time. It's a timeful act as I'm doing memory. So what is time and can time, you know, it, is it something that's eternal? Is it something that's created by God? Uh, and is it something that allows me to actually then know who God is? And so he's kind of like, he's almost trying to give like a, 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 a framing of what he's just done in the opening nine books. All right. So tell me I'm a genius. <laughs> yeah, no, I like to, I mean, I think it is exploring those preconditions. That's one of the big themes of book 10. I'm, I'm confessing, but first God already knows everything. So the question more is how can Augustine know and how can we have, as his readers know and share in this um, confession? What are the conditions for it? Um, I think another thing is it's also picking up on um, this powerful mystical experience he has with with monica before his death um, so is that is that a, is, so what we were just saying about uh you know porphyry and plotinus and those mystical experiences is there a correspondence there between what happens with monica before she dies and augustine in that mystical experience is he kind of framing it in a similar way i think there are some similarities and what one of the most notable of which going forward to book 11 is that it comes about as they're wondering what the life of the saints will be like and he does describe it as maybe a moment of sharing in this eternal life, um, which is going to be one of the themes. God has or you know is this eternal life, and then we're spread out in time. So so how do we um, bridge that gap, both through the aid of of Christ the Mediator, and then um, what can we sort of do in this life to prepare for it? Because um, I think that's also the, the question. Um, Monica just before her death is saying, well, I'm, I'm kind of ready. What am I yet to do here? And why am I still here? Um, and it was her time for Augustine, but then I think that's kind of a question you have after this great story of conversion. Um, should, should Augustine just be, be done and, and die? And, or what, what's the work of the, of the Christian um, on earth, which I think that's something he's then exploring through through these meditations um what does it look like now to try to um come to know god better and reflect on both like the distance between us and god in terms of um our our spread out and limited life um and and how to get closer okay interesting uh, what like i think we talked about because we were just at your house over the weekend for dinner um i can't remember if we talked about it then or not but when you said hey like i've done like studies on book 11 what was it that because you were at thomas aquinas college and before you went to um to princeton you were looking at doing graduate work and this was actually a topic that you were thinking of, of actually writing on was augustine and time in book 11 what what actually sparked that interest for you yeah so for me, it's something that I've always been sort of wondered about and troubled about ever since I was a kid, just the idea of eternity. Um, that on, on the one hand, uh, eternal existence seems so different from what we have now. But on the other hand, I, I think the Confessions really brings out powerfully the kind of sorrows of of time and extension and augustine mentioning like how precious this little time is that he has to reflect between all his other duties um and 
the challenges of our our life not being all present. Instead, you know, there's the part of my childhood where I was growing up in Canada, and there's the life I have now, and then there's what my kids' um, lives will be like in 20 years. But I'm only going to be able to share in that differently because I'll be 20 years older. Um, and so there are all, all these challenges where, where we want to sort of share life fully with those we love, but the way that we change and, 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 and pass away, um, yeah, make, makes that hard um, as, as, you know, all kinds of pop songs and other things. You're, you're, you're having this like memory of how things used to be or how you wish they would be. Um, and, and that's partly for Augustine, he's both power, you know, interested in these deep philosophical questions about what the present is, what time is, but it does go back to this existential question about this, the difficulties we have living in time and whether we can come to share more in God's eternity, ultimately, in a, in a way that will address that. So for you then as a philosopher, these, these actually, these questions that you deal with are actually like similar to him. They're like these existential questions coming out of your own personal experience that you tried to wrestle through. And you're, you're, I, one thing I failed to mention in the introduction was that you're actually involved with this project. Uh, I think it's out of Notre Dame called philosophy is a way of life. Mm -hmm. And so like your work on Augustine, how do you see that tying into that, these, these existential questions and then this project, um, how, like, does he, do you find him personally helpful, even like talking about book 11? Like, is this, does that help you personally as a, you're, and you're a Christian, you're an elder in a PCA church. So like, th this, this is very informative for your faith as well. Right. Yeah. I think what I love about these reflections of Augustine is he's turning to the texts of scripture, you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, but he is bringing his own experience and his own um, struggles to that. Not, not, not to sort of overwhelm the text, but, but in a way that he's saying, we're thinking about time when we're thinking about in the beginning and God's creation. But that means I, you know, I need to think through time and you as the reader can, can go through it with with me and i think something that's really important about sort of getting the most out of books 10 to 13 is to think of them more like meditations that you're supposed to be doing with augustine because he, he opens up book 10 saying look you know people love love stories that have um a great narrative arc and lots of drama like my, my conversion but you can't actually tell if i'm saying what's true or if I just made all this up like mm -hmm. that's one of the limitations of history and one of the strengths of I think the kind of method um reflective and meditative method he's drawing on um influenced by the philosophical traditions but also by scriptural ideas of meditation in books 10 is that we can go through this exercise of self-knowledge together like everything he's saying about the mind um it's not like he's telling us a story or he's saying um just what he takes to be true instead we're supposed to be going with him and i can see that oh the way i remember sights and sounds is different than the way that i i remember mathematics and we're supposed to be working um working with him through that um and then i think that comes out as well like spiritually at the the end of book 10 um where he's sort of sharing his own exercise of of confession and the confession of sin sense where he's like let me systematically think through like which des desires of the flesh am i to attach to which desires of the eyes am i to attach to and the the pride of life drawing on, on this um first john 2 16 verse so uh i kind of we see him 
on uh, going through this spiritual meditative exercise, but he's also modeling how how you could do it um, as well and find out yeah which of the five senses uh, is 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 most tempting for you how you how are you going to deal with that? Yes. I mean, like maybe cool, not on air. It's actually what happens, right? It's like, what is your, as we're reading this, you know, to, as I'm reading it to prepare for this podcast, like you end up doing it as you're reading, right? Mm -hmm. It's like it's almost got like this built in tool that like kind of makes you, if you're reading it seriously, makes you actually be contemplative in that sort of way. I also realize I'm going to ask you a billion questions here. And so I should, I should turn things over to Wyatt here and, well, I I think that's interesting. Like that the idea of being invited to contemplate with him is like a big deal. Um, I know it may not be a direct influence, but I think sometimes Plato in his dialogues asks a question then doesn't really answer it. And it sort of makes you think, okay, so what? And then you have to do the work. Mm -hmm. And maybe that Augustine is doing something similar, maybe not in copy of that earlier person, but just for the sake of doing that similar idea. And just to give you one illustration, then I'll let you kind of respond. Uh, I made my Psalm students read um, Athanasius's record of a uh, an elder from the Egypt on the Psalms. And then this week I made them, and some it'll actually be next week because some didn't read it. Um, They're going to read John Calvin's preface to the Psalms. And one of the responses was, John Calvin just makes way better sense because he's straightforward. But I would argue that Athanasius makes you like you're just thinking about everything when you read him. Yeah. Maybe it's not as like thesis 0.1, mm. 0.2, 0.3, 0.4 necessary conclusion on the basis of prior points, ergo, whatever conclusion. But a lot of times, like I, I just enjoy reading a guy like Augustine or Nyssa or whoever, because while I'm reading, my mind is like just on fire, all sorts of ideas. Yeah. Sometimes you need organization. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, you know, and Augustine's fairly organized, but mm -hmm. you see, I don't know, maybe respond to what I'm saying, if that's close to what he's doing or if that's helpful or whatever. Yeah, no, I think that's a strong point. Um, and one where he really is influenced by um, both Plato and Plotinus, um, where Plotinus also has a similar, uh, there'll be a topic he's talking about, but it'll kind of go around the question, explore it from different angles. Um, and you contrast that with someone like Aristotle, who I also work on and, and who will set up the question and some problems, but then will very systematically answer it and tell you um, exactly what common combination of qualifications well, you I should just, make. A quick, just a quick addition. I remember reading one of Plato's letters, which I know maybe you're not from him, but I can't, but he has this whole section where like sometimes he writes letters and like covers things up so people don't know because they can't know the answer. Like they have to think through it. Mm -hmm. I don't remember. Yeah, he has a collection of letters. and some Yeah, this is the well, yeah, most scholars think that the seventh letter isn't authentic. But but actually, Augustine himself, the one thing I didn't mention, he thinks that uh, even the skeptical academics, they're, they're, they might have just been skeptical for the masses while they held on to this um, hidden, mm -hmm. hidden doctrine. So he's he's a little sympathetic to that. Um, mm -hmm. But I think two great examples of this method are his discussion of evil and the, and the pear trees or earlier on in the confessions and then and then his discussion on time where i think if you look closely um in both cases he does make some progress towards um saying what he thinks evil is or in, in, involves how 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 it comes about the sort of defect in the will or time as something that's um in a way dependent on and measured by 
by the soul. But there isn't sort of a definitive statement. Instead, he comes back again and again to the questions from different angles with, I think, that meditative goal. And it's going to help you reflect on it in a way that um, if you just ask what the statement, here's are you really thinking through for it you? in a deep Wait, you way. You got choppy there for a second. You're back. You're back. It's fine. There's just a second we got choppy. You're good, though. Yeah, so I think if you look, um, what he's avoiding is this, I think, feeling that a lot of uh, well, both philosophers and theologians and others have that whenever you're considering an issue, you've got to give the definitive answer. And that's partly um, where I think he thinks there's something to the skeptics and, and also um, a difference between Christians and philosophers, insofar as most of the philosophers um, thought that wisdom was attainable, so you were going to be able to get the definitive answers here and now, whereas he thinks ultimately it's attainable with God's help, but probably mostly in the next life, and that, that means that there should continue to be intellectual struggles. Um, and so just saying, oh, it's, it's obvious, and we'll just settle this question once and for all, that, that's not really the right way to respect um, both the limits of our current human understanding and the, and the depths of scripture and, and the world that God's created. Like we don't even know how physics work, <laughs> like, gra mm -hmm. like gravity and time. And like, so I just, it is funny how we think we're more certain than we are. Like I told my students this morning, you can think of any biblical conclusion you have should be plausible. It's best to be probable. But you, you alone can't come to certain answers. You have to borrow that from God because only he can have certainty. And so that's why revelation is so important. Um, whether you like that threefold distinction or not, you can just disagree with me. But my point was to illustrate, like, there, there's so much in life where you're doing, you have the most probable answer because of what you know. And that's, you just have to live on the basis of that. There's some things that are so, um, it, it's okay to say, I don't know for sure. And like, that's actually what makes life exciting. Like, if you're like, Oh, this physics stuff's blame. Up, up is up and down is down. Blah, I got it. Like you're just a boring person. Like you should be more interesting because life becomes boring. And I think sometimes in um in certain circles that I've I've been in, life becomes so mundane and boring because everyone just wants this option, this option, the answer. Boom, I'm done thinking. Mm -hmm. Like, don't you want to have fun? <laughs> like. Don't you like to live and have zest and like be wrong and be excited about being wrong and then be right and have all that satisfying feeling of like pursuing something? I mean, what expert carpenter doesn't want to fail a thousand times to make a perfect product and look at it? And then we just go to like theology or philosophy in this case and just think, ah, I'll just I'll just do whatever's most plausible. I'll just pick that immediately and boom, I'll move on as if that's a good intellectual development. It seems like it's clearly not. And the reason why I would suggest that Augustine's work like Confessions or City of God or Trinity, Trinity are have lasting influences because they're not like that or else they'd be boring. I mean, there's a reason why God didn't inspire Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. He obviously it's didn't. boring. <laughs> but he inspired the Bible. It's like, and the funny thing is his is better than a lot of other ones that are super. No, I don't mean that he's uniquely boring. I, I just mean yeah, yeah. that genre is not exciting is what, what I'm trying to say. So the, like, you, you guys are both saying it sparked just a kind of weird thought or observation. Um, and and this, I could be totally off here in terms of just like the history of like of modern philosophy. I really hope you're off because I want you to get called out for this. Oh. Yeah, it's going to be great. Um, 
But Caleb, do, is there a distinction in terms like, is there a measurable distinction between the interests that people now or in the last say 150 years have had in Augustine between the more analytic style of philosophy versus more continental? You know, cause it seems like, you know, you look at somebody like, you know, French thinkers, Albert Camus or Derrida or somebody who seemed to be really taken in by Augustine, even though they wouldn't be, you know, Christians or theists or anything, mm -hmm. but like, are there analytic philosophers that are looking at him? I mean, you can systematize him, obviously. He's got, there's a real logic to his thought and grounding uh, of it epistemologically and things like that. But because he, and it's this philosophy as a way of life stuff again, right? It's like mm -hmm. he lends himself so much to these existential questions that it makes sense that an atheist existentialist in France is going to read him. Will, will the analytic tradition be as, <laughs> as favorable to him, do you think? Or I just could be right off. Yeah, I think on the one hand, he definitely has had uh, influence on the analytic tradition um, in the philosophy of time as, as a big exponent of, of presentism, the idea that only present things exist, um, and just you know laying down a lot of the markers or boundaries for the philosophy and theology that people are responding to. But I think in some ways he does get picked up a little more by the existential continental tradition because he's... Um, his writings are so phenomenological in a way that they are really trying to forefront. Here's my experience here. I'm trying to think through it. Um, I'm trying to think through the self and myself as an experiencing subject. Um, and so it resonated with some themes that I think for a while weren't, were picked up more in continental traditions than analytic, though I think that might be changing. And uh, yeah, as philosophy as a way of life becomes a, a big movement on both the analytic and, and continental sides, I think there's a, a lot we have to learn from him. And especially this point about living with uncertainty or, or what do the virtues look like? Part, part of my project is saying, if we switch from the Aristotelian view where you can achieve full intellectual and moral excellences and live them out, um, and you now think that we're all going to um, have some bad moral and intellectual inclinations as well as some good ones. And so we're not going to achieve perfect virtues. But what does what does um, acting reasonably good look like? Can, can we set some st some standards that that are that are attainable, um, even if they they aren't the full blown excellences that that, that people like Aristotle or the, or the Stoics um, thought we could achieve in this life. Hmm. So, so as we get oh, closer to the, to the end time, I want to ask you a... I, I want to ask one more broad I, I want, Okay, well, I'll, I'll, mine's a slow pitch, easy question. So Augustine seems to say that um, the past and future don't have substantive existence because, you know. But if God's uh, etern eternal Boethian present, mm -hmm. and everything's present to him, outside of and supra time wouldn't it follow that before god everything is substantively existent whether past present or future from our perspective are you arguing for an eternal universe i'm just asking the question yeah so i think and you see this in augustine on prophecy where he's more inclined to say um maybe the signs are there um that then allow for the interpretation of of the future i think there he's he's wary about making that move partly because we don't understand what eternity would be like so um how all these things are present to god i think it's important to affirm that they are um but also that they that they are really 
changeable and, and dependent on what comes before and after. Um, so I think it's, it's very different than say a static four-dimensional universe where, where time is just another dimension like space and things are located at different points on it. Um, for Augustine, the world has real change and uh, a central part of his philosophy and theology is that everything other than God came out of nothing and has the kind of tendency towards nothingness that if God weren't uh, always, always stepping in, um, that that's what would happen in the, in, in the moment. So, so I think in that sense, God has to be, uh, you know, present to everything because otherwise it would all fall, fall into nothingness, but, but that doesn't get rid of the dependencies between creatures and, and then the, the, the temporal order of some things coming before and later. And then the idea that, that time itself isn't, uh, isn't eternal, but only exists um, in relationship to um, created changeable things once God makes them. Um, so here, can I give you, a, this is a lame question. So I've got to go literally. In a, I had a cool question. You better have a minute. Okay, well, let me ask mine. I'll do it quick. And, uh, and, and then I'm going to run because I got a class. We're going to talk about Augustine and problem of evil. And Just tell your class you're late because you're having a more interesting conversation. Yeah, that's true. Um, so, okay, so on the uh, kind of stepping back and thinking about these debates that have been going on just recently over like so-called classical theism and whatnot, um, th this is your area of expertise. How do you how do you kind of like think of these debates that are going on that are kind of like, especially the inter-reformed debates? I don't know how much you follow them on social media and that sort of thing. Like, do you think that they're useful? Are we, are people on the right track? Um, what are, I don't know. I just, I'm just interested in your general opinion about them. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the first thing I'd say, and that I've learned from Augustine and Plato, it, is this kind of caution about how perfect our understanding is 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 going to be. Um, and so charity is sort of the, the starting point uh -huh. that uh, even though I think some of these views are going to turn out to be quite wrong and, and maybe have bad implications, but it might be that we haven't thought things through or or that there's a certain kind of experience or insight that you don't want to not deny. And so I think, you know, talking about divine simplicity, some sometimes people think that makes God static and uh, uh, unresponsive or just utterly alien. And I think one great thing that we can use the confessions to see is, is how um, Augustine can experience God as uh, intensely loving, as caring for him, um, and offering this kind of refuge through having this uh, eternal, um, unchanging and secure um, life that then we're, we're offered a chance to share in. And I think that idea um, of, of eternity as living and active and in this kind of perfect way, I think that's something Augustine takes both from scripture and these philosophical traditions he's operating out of. And I think that's a good starting point for getting into an idea like divine sim simplicity and seeing it as um, holding on to something about how, how great God is instead of um, getting rid of attributes that um, we want uh, a, a loving and um, compassionate God to have. Hmm. Right, I'm going to ditch you. Why, why don't you ask your question and you can close? No, it I already asked my question. Oh, I mean, you we did? Can, oh, okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Cause I got like two minutes before my class. Okay. 
uh, open. So let me just say thanks, Caleb. Um, on, I mean, you and I have these discussions all the time where I just sit there going, yeah, okay. <laughs> so this is awesome. And, and uh, it's fun for me to be able to share this with another really good friend of mine, Wyatt, and then with the people that are listening. And I think this is going to be really beneficial for everyone. I'm sure we'll probably invite you to the podcast again sometime, sometime down the future, especially when we do Aquinas, which will probably be soon. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, so th thanks for this. Um, so uh, before before we finally close, maybe share, share I'll, I'll say this. Looking forward to seeing you guys at Thanksgiving in a couple of weeks at your place. Because mm. uh, the true Canadian Thanksgiving is the Canadian one. Um, yeah. Where's the information for philosophy as a way of life? Like if somebody wants to get more into it, um, maybe we'll just close with you sharing that. And then why you can say goodbye. Yeah. So um, phylife, P-H-I, life.nd.edu has more on that project. Um, on my website, you can see I have a paper on how um, Augustine moves towards valuing the body and goods such as um, health and relationships with others more after he after he becomes a Christian and takes a more otherworldly look. So so um, I'm sort of making the case that that uh, belief in a future life isn't isn't actually going to turn you away from this world. Um, the readers might be interested in that. Um, and though there'll, there'll be more, more coming soon, hopefully.